hello listeners, it's Britt the Petite Polymath. I got another episode for you pretty quickly from my last one uh, because I read something else that was fiction and was excellent. Um, It's Richard Powers' novel, The Overstory. So stay tuned. So, you know, when you move to a place that you have not lived for 12 years, um, your social life uh, takes a bit to get back on its feet. In addition to the fact that we're currently still living in a pandemic, so I have a lot of solitude. Um, And I had this recommendation for this book, which I then was like, well, I'm intrigued by the premise, and so I'm going to check it out, and then I couldn't put the book down. So Richard Powers, an author who I actually believe won the Pulitzer Prize for this novel, which came out in 2018, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 2019 for this book. I guess the best way to describe it, and I haven't read anything else by this author, but I think I I might try to investigate in the future. I thought that it was going to be a book about different sorts of trees and then how they relate to various individuals who at some point you then realize are all connected. That isn't exactly the way that it went. We meet nine people. So the beginning chapters, one chapter is a couple. Um, So it's eight chapters about these people. And then at the end, which are like the roots, I think roots, leaves, and seeds, I believe are the last three chapters, um, which are longer. Those are how all of these people are all connected, okay? Um, So for those of you who don't know, I took an herbalism course in the midst of the pandemic. It was my pandemic silver lining. And I'm, you know, a doctor by profession, So there's a lot of um, opinions about herbalism in allopathic medicine, which is a fancy way of saying Western medicine, which is a fancy way of saying what you normally see when you go to the doctor, right? Um, So anyways, this herbalism course blew my mind. I met wonderful people. I learned a ton. And I've been really interested now in just kind of this interface between the green world, if you will, and us mammals and reptiles and, you know, any other sort of creeping thing to use some Genesis terminology. Um, And so I was just very moved by the language of this book. Number one, Richard Powers has a way with words. It's really poetic in many ways, even the really hard and dark and heavy things. And I think that he's really kind of sounding the alarm to us of just how destructive humanity is um, and where we're headed. Because if I, if I have my timeline right, towards the end of the novel, we're in the early 2000s. Like we're just maybe a year or two out of 9-11. Um, so, you know, most of this is, is building people up maybe in like the 50s and 60s. And then they're adults with, you know, kids, I guess, who would be my age, technically, by the time you get through the end of the novel. Um, so it's a very, like, varied cast. We have a, a Chinese-American woman. Her father's Chinese. Uh, her mother is, is a white Virginian woman. She's the oldest of three sisters 
who's an engineer named Mimi. We have um, a white couple, uh, Ray and Dorothy, who um, fall in love. Dorothy can't have kids. That becomes a thing. Uh, and it's like during the era of the 60s, and Dorothy's quite the free spirit, and Ray is a patent attorney. Everything is just so to him, but he loves this woman and will do anything for her. We have a Vietnam vet named Douglas Pavlicek, uh, who is one of the um, participants in the Stanford prison experiment, which has gone down in history as why we now have an IRB. That's a whole other thing that should be tabled for conversation at another time. Um, we also have a young man named Nick Hole, who comes from a family um, of just like good Midwestern stock and, and like this, you know, stoicism and strength of character um, that's passed down from generation to generation and the dysfunction as well that's passed down from generation to generation. We also have this young woman named Olivia who is just a piece of work at the start and literally has, has you know, dies and comes back as a very different person. Uh, and that drives her. So those are just some of the characters that you meet. I don't think I told you about all of them. Did I? No, I didn't. Um, we have an Indian, first-generation Indian-American young man who is, you know, the son of immigrants and has a turn in his childhood that changes his whole life and very much lives in the world of computers, okay, as, as like the beginning of the Internet, the beginning of computer processing is taking off in the 80s. And so each of them, though, is pulled by the world of trees and what trees mean. And this is really profound for me because, as I told you, I took this herbalism course, and for the first time in my life since I was a child, I sat next to a tree and, like, didn't have an agenda. You know, like, we would call it tree sitting. You would sit with a plant and just kind of see what the plant told you or what came up. And the people in this novel do the same thing. And for some of them, the trees talk. For some of them, the trees uh, have very clear voices and things to say. For some of them, the trees are their salvation. For others, the trees are their damnation. But regardless, the trees have something to say. And one theme that comes out is that they have been here longer than us and they will be here when we're gone number one number two that the idea of independence and individuality is a myth perpetuated by our little brains but it's not real and that we are all very much interconnected and interdependent on each other and not just as humans, but also to the natural world. Number three, that our consumption, that our abuse of this planet will be our downfall. Now, you know, for those of you who have listened to me, you know that my faith is very, is very um, central to the way in which I live my life. And, and it was very compelling to me and many times I was moved to tears, just kind of the profundity of these things, because I believe all of that to be very true. And 
you know, in real time, like we, you know, the world is on fire, right? Like we have this global pandemic, we have injustice as to who gets, you know, access to vaccinations or who can socially distance or who can quarantine. And then we have like people in the West thumbing their noses at science and not trustworthy. But then we also have nefarious folk in power who have their own agendas that they're, you know, spinning things for their own gain. We have global warming and we have multiple places on fire. Algeria, Northern Africa, Oregon and California, Greece and Turkey. Uh, We are, you know, um, destroying the Amazon. Thank you, Brazil and Bolsonaro. Um, We're polluting the oceans. (laughs) The Arctic caps are melting. We're already having like, you know, hurricane season moving upon us. This is where we are, right? And it is sobering and terrifying, and yet also it seems like an opportunity. And so I will stop uh, with my, you know, I don't know, preaching at this point, to just say that the novel feels very timely. There's some really beautiful language in the ways that this book gives you, I don't know, a glimpse into the the ways that that things fall apart and the language of that of death and destruction or brutality is really beautifully framed which is a strange way to say it so for example um with mimi's family the ma family her mother has early onset alzheimer's and uh, the family's on a trip camping in the national parks, which is something her father was really excited to do every summer, and he would keep notes so that he could perfect the trip, the family trip every year. And her mother, Charlotte, the way that uh, the author frames this, I just have to read this little excerpt. Charlotte gives up trying to control them. No one suspects yet, but she has already begun to slip into the long private place that each passing year will deepen. She sits in the front seat, navigating maps for her husband, and humming Chopin nocturnes under her breath. Dementia starts here in these days of quiet, automotive sainthood. And I just thought that, I mean, like, that kind of stopped me in my tracks. Um, You know, having lost a grandma to Alzheimer's and thinking about, like, where or when did this start and trying to figure it out, like, trying to go back in time. And just how he, how he paints that picture is incredibly striking to me. Uh, there's also a, another bit that I, I, that I found really, really interesting. Um, so Adam, who is another character who, is, um, who ends up being a professor, but I think if we, today, he would probably have been diagnosed as Asperger's, okay? And he's one of a, of a host of siblings. He's got, you know, really cruel um, older brother and a very loving big sister and, and you know, a family that's just pretty dysfunctional. Um, and the way that they kind of frame 
Adam, I think, is pretty timely. Let's see if I can find a good... Ah, yes, here it is. Sir Richard Powers is talking about coming of age and about children going the wrong direction. And so this is a term, or this is a, a phraseology that he kind of uses here. He and a friend map the school, the supermarket, the branch bank. They plan what kind of hardware they need to make a heist. The plans get elaborate. They prize weapons just for grins. It's a game for Adam. Logistics, planning, resource management. For his friend, it's one step away from religion. Adam watches the precarious boy, fascinated. A seed that lands upside down on the ground will wheel, root and stem, and great U-turns until it writes itself. But a human child can know it's pointed wrong and still consider the direction well worth a try. And I love that in that he's saying that the child knows the path they're going isn't right. And yet they continue to proceed down that path. I also liked, and I had to look this up on, for my own, like I love etymology. I always say if I hadn't been a doctor, I probably would have been like a linguist or something. And there were two different words that, that potentially are linked to other ones. And so oak, the word for oak and the word for door being rooted in the same like original word, but also the word for beech, like the beech tree and book also being rooted in the same word. And I just thought that was really cool. We don't really know. I mean, you know, they were like, well, maybe it's, it's in Sanskrit. That could be hard to say. But I just found that really fascinating. It also made me want to learn more about the roots of words. And now I'm going to end up being even more nerdy and buying a book on the roots of words and seeing what I can find, because that's what I do. Okay, what other things struck me? Do, do, do. Let me look. I think, ah, uh, let's see, maybe I don't have to read this to you, but I can just kind of say, I just love, so there's apparently, I think it's out in, is it in Utah? It might be Utah, it might be Colorado, do not hold me to this exactly, that there is an aspen stand where it's actually one organism, all of the trees are clones, and they're all one male aspen, but it's multiple aspen trees which is just, now I have to go and find this place. Like, I just think that's amazing. So, there we are. Okay, let me see if I found, I, I like made a list of all the things that stood out to me. Doo -doo -doo. Ah, yes, love, the concept of love. So there's another character named Patricia, who's kind of, you know, um, a bit awkward looking as a child, but hits her stride in university. And there is a man, Dennis, who she ends up ultimately marrying, who loves her for her mind and also gives her the freedom to be who she wants to be. And, um, and he is drawn to her independence. And so they, he, you know, very unromantically, um, proposes to her and she accepts and when this happens uh 
you know, it's real. It, it's just a very, a very heartfelt, um, heartwarming scene, how this occurs. And so she says here, she takes his shaking hand in the dark. It feels good, like a root must feel, when it finds after centuries another root to pleach to underground. There are a hundred thousand species of love, separately invented, each more ingenious than the last, and every one of them keeps making things. And that's another big theme through this book, is that what we can see of the natural world um, versus what is actually present underneath, it's a whole other universe underneath our feet. And of course, you know, if you know about mycelium and those mycelial networks that connect trees, how trees communicate amongst each other um, using, you know, uh, volatile compounds um, above our heads, it's just, it just blows your mind. And it's not even just like one species of tree. It's like the oak speaks to the sycamore, which speaks to the pine tree. Like, if they're in the same place, they're all communicating with each other, um, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, let me see if I have any other poignant bits to share. Ah, a, a good thought in our current climate of pandemic findings. The best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. It's probably a nice thing to remember in our current uh, climate. And then I did save one other bit. Oh, the virus of convenience. So one of the characters, Nick, who I told you about earlier, um, ends up working for <laughs> a not uh, a not named fulfillment center. Sounds a lot like Amazon, and how <laughs> how we will die for the sake of convenience. And I'm just going to read this bit to you because it spoke to me. The project here is not so much books as that. Goal of 10,000 years of history, the thing that human brains crave above all else, and nature will die, refusing to give. Convenience. Ease is the disease, and Nick is its vector. His employers are a virus that will one day live symbiotically inside everyone. Once you've bought a novel in your pajamas, there's no turning back. Which is so horrifying, because it's so true. It's so true. Oh my gosh, the things we give up for convenience and efficiency. It is actually terrifying because nothing is free. And the last thing that I thought was striking is that later in the book, Mimi ends up doing therapy with people and the therapy she does is staring into people's eyes. And there's this whole scene of how we don't look at each other in the eyes for very long. And so I will now diverge into a short personal story before I end this, because I'm rapidly coming up to 20 minutes, and that's longer than I normally talk. Um, so a couple years ago, I went to Eden, Utah, which is a beautiful land on a mountain, and I went to a wellness retreat, and the icebreakers at this wellness retreat were very, you know, woo-woo and warm and fuzzy, and one of them was staring into someone's eyes. At the beginning, it's funny, and then it gets awkward, 
And then it starts to feel like a punch, a punch in the gut. Like you just, a lot of things start to come up. Like you, 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 you laugh or you actually might start weeping or you kind of want to look away. And it's a very weird thing because we don't really look at each other in the eyes for very long, you know. I mean, maybe lovers do that um, and maybe they don't. And, and, and only then, like fleetingly, or it's connected to something, you know, amorous. But it's not, you look at your babies in the eyes, you know. You might look at your small children in the eyes periodically. But at some point, we stop making eye contact in a way that doesn't feel... Um, invasive and when you look at someone and someone looks back at you without any words exchanged something really profound starts to break down and aren't we really at our very core wanting just to be seen I know for me that is something I think a lot about is this desire really to just be seen and known and accepted, right? Isn't that like what most people are going for when you really get down to it? And so, oh, this book wrecked me. I'm still thinking about it. And I'm going to come back with a couple of like lighthearted things that I recommend for you. But this was just, I mean, chef's kiss. I, I really say go read the overstory. So, um, fun things. Uh, I've been listening, or actually I've been watching on Amazon Prime, um, courtesy of the Acorn edition, uh, The Broken Wood Mysteries. I believe my friend, the Scott, has been listening to my podcast, and he and his wife, Becky, recommended this to me. I mean, who doesn't love a good Kiwi murder mystery? And I was a big stand of murder she wrote as a child. Angela Lansbury for life. I think she's still alive. She's wonderful. So um, that has been really enjoyable. Um, otherwise, I don't think I have too much else. I've been listening to just old playlists that I've been making, to be honest. Uh, so yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, I hope you all have a lovely weekend. And uh, until next time. Petite Polymath is a podcast from the mind of Britstone. Have a great weekend, everyone. I'll read something good soon, I promise. <laughs>